You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have, what a surprise, yet another awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Megan, who is the Kickstart Program Manager at CSIRO. We're going to hear all about that soon. Welcome to the show, Dr. Megan. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm super curious about what your answer to this one is going to be. What is your job? I'm the program manager of a program at CSIRO called CSIRO Kickstart. And essentially what we do is we help Australian startups and small businesses access CSIRO's research expertise to undertake a project that's going to help them grow and develop their business. And we actually co-fund those projects up to 50% of the cost. So effectively, we're making these research and development projects cheaper, more accessible, more readily available to Australian startup companies in the idea that as they grow and expand, they'll have more R&D requirements and, and hopefully we'll continue to have an ongoing relationship with them. We'll be able to support their growth through some of our other programs that we facilitate, like the Innovation Connection Scheme, which is a little, which is similar, but it's for larger companies. So we sort of support them in their growth, whether they're tech-oriented businesses or maybe they're they're not necessarily a scientific business, but they'll have a technical challenge that they need assistance with. If we can help them, then yeah, the Kickstart program can facilitate that and co-invest in those projects to help get the company um, to that next stage in their growth journey. That sounds fantastic. It it sounds like you would get exposure to quite a lot of cool and different things that are happening both across CSIRO and across the startup world. Absolutely. I think that's something that for me is one of the highlights of my job. Every day I'm speaking to all sorts of different companies, founders. They could be serial entrepreneurs. They could be someone that spun out an idea from a university. They could be someone that just had an entrepreneurial spirit, that a problem presented to them in their life, and they've decided to set up a company to address that. So, and pairing that with the fact that CSIRO is, is a very diverse research organization. We do a lot of work in could be med tech, it could be food and agriculture, you know, synthetic biology, all sorts of things. So, you know, as long as what the company's looking to work on uh, aligns with our research capabilities and strategy, etc., then generally, you know, we can find a research partner for them, which means that, yeah, one day I could be helping a company that's developing, it could be like a new pharmaceutical market, or they might be coming up with the next plant-based protein. You just don't know. You could open your email and discover literally anything. Yeah, phone calls, emails. I get to hear some really great stories and inventions every day. So, yeah, it is. you don't really know what that next phone call or email is going to bring necessarily. I'm just guessing here, but I would think that most people wouldn't realise that you could kind of commission CSIRO. Or, like, I think a lot of people would assume that it's an organisation that exists and it's cool and we know it's cool. But it's kind of like off in the distance. It's not necessarily there as something we, a resource that we could access and use. Mm. Yeah. So we do have one of my colleagues, uh, George Face, actually leads an initiative at CSIRO called the SME Collaboration Nation Initiative. And that has a broad ecosystem goal of actually doubling the engagement of industry with the public research sector by 2030. 
So we do that in a variety of ways through programs like Kickstart. We have another um, free 10-week program called Innovate to Grow, which provides support to companies who are maybe thinking about undertaking research and development project but not really sure how to scope that out, they get mentorship, that sort of thing. And then we actually facilitate the Innovation Connection Scheme, which is a DISA-funded program that, in a similar way to Kickstart, will co-fund projects between, so SMEs, a small to medium enterprise. Theirs typically sits around the, the more medium size, whereas Kickstart is very startup focused. But they co-fund those projects with the entire public research sector. So you might be collaborating with a university, for example, or another could be CSIRO in that case. The companies that are eligible for that, as I said, are slightly bigger. So we actually created the Kickstart program to capture the companies that aren't quite yet eligible for that. But yeah, we are an initiative for innovative Australian startups and small businesses. And yet we can help match them to a CSIRO team that could help them overcome, say, like a technical challenge, a scientific challenge they don't have the capabilities in-house to address. So, yes, for us generally, working with startups and SMEs is part of our our goal and, and strategy and something that we're really keen to promote as well. Are there any particular projects that you've come across or that you've worked with through the Kickstart program that have really excited you? It's like asking to pick a favourite child. I know. It's like the cruelest question, but I'm still going to ask it. Yeah, no. So, I mean, like I said, part of the diversity of the projects means that it is quite challenging, to, you know, to pick favourites or, or whatnot. But we do have quite a few case studies on our website. And I think, you know, some areas that are really exciting me at the moment so my background is an environmental scientist so I'm really quite excited by a project that we're working on at the moment with a company called Ulu and they are looking at addressing the issue of plastic waste so we actually had a CSIRO had a little article come out about that project earlier this week so that's a nice relevant one that's looking at plastics from renewable ocean materials And, and so I think things like this are just so timely it's what it's what the world needs right now. It's something that can be really driven from Australian innovation that the company's also got some co-investment from CSIRO's venture capital firm, Main Sequence. So there's, you know, a few different avenues through which companies can be supported. I think another one that I quite liked that I think is topical at the moment is we worked with a company called Washwild who recognised, I guess, throughout the pandemic that people needing to use a lot more cleaning products, a lot more in the way of cleaning, hygiene, et cetera, is front and centre of people's minds. So they actually came up with a new cleaning products that are based from more environmentally friendly botanicals and things like that. So we did some testing for them to make sure that particular pathogens they were looking at, it actually did perform the way that they wanted it to, being made from these more, I guess, natural or, or botanical materials. But we've got another company doing really interesting stuff in, you know, with AI for planning surgeries and new forms of plant-based proteins from faba beans. They're all fabulous is what I'm saying. <laughs> we've commenced about 210 now and the time Kickstart's been running. So we've been going since early 2017. So we, we, you know, we sort of do 40 to 50 projects a year. So yeah, there's, there's a a lot to pull from there for sure. (laughs) That is a lot of projects and a lot of people that you've sort of given that uh, boost to. 
Are there any particular ones where you can see, like it's been a couple of years where you can see that you have been able to help them, like for example, get to market and I guess get to somewhere where they wouldn't have been able to without this program? Yeah, I mean, the I think the goal really for a lot of them is that it's it's sort of a stepping stone to the next phase. So at some some of them may have a more ongoing relationship with us, like they will go through, say, Kickstart, and then as the company gets larger and ter- has more turnover, they go into a um that they might qualify for the Innovation Connection Scheme and continue to work with us. One example of that that I'm really actually excited about at the moment is a company called Amber Electric. They've been in the news a little bit recently with the power shop closures and things like that. They actually won a few weeks ago, they co-won one of the, so the Victorian Startup of the Year Award. So that that was very exciting. Uh, they worked with uh, some researchers in CSIRO's energy division and I believe we're continuing to work with them through the, the Innovation Connection Scheme now. So it'll be really exciting to see where that goes and unfolds in the coming years because, again, like for renewable energy, energy efficiency, all of that is about as relevant as you can get at the moment. I mentioned plant-based proteins earlier. We did work with a, a company called Australian Plant Proteins on optimising the production of a fibre bean protein powder They've gone on and done a lot of extra R&D since then and, and you know, have really built up as a, a company, but they have they were in the news with the South Australian Premier a few weeks ago because they're going to be, along with some other partners, um, establishing new manufacturing hubs in South Australia to produce this. So they've got one in Horsham already and that's now going to be expanding into um, South Australia. So... Obviously, you know, that the companies go and they, they get more support, more investment, they seek out other partners and whatnot. But it is really nice to know that you can catalyze this or you can support that in some way that would maybe help these things to happen more quickly, for example, than if a company had to raise all of the funds to, to do that work themselves or had to even potentially take technology overseas to, to get that R&D support. But if we can help them do that work here, then you know, hopefully that we'll see more examples of these really innovative technologies being developed and commercialised here in Australia too, because we've certainly got the brains trust to do it. It's just making sure that all these parties can work together to actually get the these beneficial outcomes. So, um, yeah, there's some real, really topical ones at the moment. But, yeah, as I said, favourite children can't pick. <laughs> Okay, we'll all just have to go to the website and read the case studies ourselves and, yeah, they do sound awesome and it it is clearly quite a diversity. What do you need to do to be part of this program? Like how far developed do you have to have an idea? How much funding do you have to have? So the companies can be very early stage but they do need to be a company, so an established entity operating as a business in Australia. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you're already in retail or anything like that, but you need to be an an established company, company structure. That could be a week old. It could be 10 years old. The criteria for Kickstart is that if the company is less than three years old, then as long as you're an Australian company registered for GST, you qualify. If the company's more than three years old, then you need to have a turnover and operating expenditure less than $1.5 million per year. The main reason is that three years old and above $1.5 million in turnover is when they would actually qualify for the follow-on program Innovation Connections. 
So we want to capture the early stage companies, less than three years old, or the ones that are still, I guess, what you would we would classify then more as small business. So they could be 10 years old, but still qualify for Kickstart. So we are an eligibility-based program. It's not competitive. So if the company's eligible and we've got the expertise and the capabilities and the capacity to take on the project, then generally speaking, the applications are, you know, are very successful because we, we are an eligibility-based scheme. So it's really those three criteria around the company's age and size and the fact that they're, they're an Australian company, that the innovation's being developed here. They're the things that we really look for. And the project would, that they wanted to do would need to have that genuine sort of research and development aspect to it. So we would need to be contributing to that development of the product or process that the company was working on. You know, we don't sort of, we can't support things like marketing or market research or those kinds of maybe what you would look to apply for a grant to do. We are more of a, um, like a voucher scheme. So we defray the costs that the company would normally incur when they wanted to do a project with us. So the co-investment that the company makes needs to be at least 50% of the project. And we have a minimum project size of $20,000. So a company would need to be able to chip in $10,000 cash towards a project in order to qualify. So that's sort of that that key criteria. And then we can go up to a maximum of $50,000 per project, which would be $100,000 worth of work when we dollar match that for them. So yeah, normally the projects would sit between that twenty dollars to $100,000 size. Some of them go bigger than that, but because you can do up to two kickstart projects, normally they would sort of do one, take a bit of time to get the outcomes of that, perhaps seek out some further investment or plan what their next step or their strategy is and when they're ready as long as they still qualify for the program they can come back and apply for up to another $50,000 to subsidize a second project with CSIRO. How does it work with like IP if they come up with an idea that is groundbreaking and CSIRO essentially do the research and find out yes it is groundbreaking like do you then have any ownership over that? Is there any risk of someone nicking off with an idea? <laughs> so the short, long answer to that is that in all cases, the IP is negotiated on a case-by-case basis because the nature of the projects that we work on is so different. So, you know, some it will be very much that we, the company comes to us with some IP, we're doing some uh, work for them on their IP and maybe no additional IP is generated in the project. Or if it is, it would generally in that case be assigned to the company and that's what we endeavor to do in in as many situations as possible is that any new IP generated in the project is assigned to the company however that would also then depend on what background IP both parties have in that area if we had significant background IP then we wouldn't be able to assign that for example because we may already be working with that IP with other companies or in other research areas So that's when it would be a negotiation around what type of licensing agreement that we could offer the company. Maybe it's exclusive to their field of use, but we can use it outside of their field, those sorts of considerations. But all of that is discussed typically before the actual formal application is put in so that there's an in-principle understanding of, you know, if you want to proceed with this project, this is the type of IP arrangement we can offer but as I said, in the vast majority of cases and wherever possible, any new IP would stay with the company. Fantastic. It's always something that people get a bit edgy about when they do any of this 
sort of stuff that like they're gonna nick off with my idea yeah and we are designed to be as as company friendly a program as possible obviously we sort of have to take into consideration the research we're already doing and are looking to do more of in the future and those sorts of things but our business development managers will often have that conversation or via a team lead or something like that with the client so we you know our process is aiming to have this as clearly defined and as transparent as possible so that it's rare but in some cases it may be that if it's not a suitable agreement then the company may choose not to proceed with the application something like that but generally speaking that's quite rare because of the the nature of the projects that we're doing so yeah it is the the program is designed really for the, the companies but in saying that as a researcher participating in these projects they can be very very interesting as well because you're often working in areas that are maybe not necessarily the focus of your usual day-to-day work or it's a market that you haven't actually seen or or considered to be an application of the work that you do so as much as this is a company-centric kind of program it's actually I think as a a researcher really valuable and interesting to be involved in as well because there's a lot of exposure to the way that research is done outside of an academic sector or research environment too like the research doesn't stop at the academic institutions it's being done in other places too so I think that the benefit actually is very mutual. Uh, You you can imagine it being quite exciting if someone especially if it's someone outside of your field who's come up with an idea and it's that sort of intersection between two things that could be all the sparks flying. Yeah and sometimes the company might actually be aware of IP in that organisation whether it's a university or CSIRO and and they know that they want to actually incorporate that into their product somehow so it can actually be you know a commercialisation pathway for technologies being developed in R&D institutions as well that's less common but it certainly has has happened you know we've got a case study of a company on our website called Campow who used some CSIRO technology to make its uh, therapeutics for uh, pets, like dogs. So, they're, and they're in full retail now. Plant-derived animal therapies. So, you know, and, and they, I think, were aware of this tech that, that had been developed in CSIRO before a- approaching us to do the project. So, yeah, that does happen too, but generally it's the company that comes to us saying, this is what I'm doing. This is a problem I have. Can you help me solve it? And then myself or someone in my team, our job is to go and find them the person that can help them solve it. So you get to do a bit of matchmaking of cool ideas and people who can make a thing happen. That is what I spend most of my day doing is matchmaking. <laughs> it's really quite, quite, you know, you know, very, very much the facilitation role. We talk a lot about, you know, the funding and that being the benefits, but I think really it's having that team, that group of people that can help you make contact and connections with people doing work in your area and even if they don't progress to a project now in six or 12 months time they might or maybe you know there's opportunity to work on another project together through a CRC or something like that you just we're we're about collaboration really and that collaboration could happen in the context of kickstart or it could potentially happen in another way as well so that connectivity within the research and industry and the startup sort of ecosystems is I think what drives a lot of the work that that we're doing. Speaking of such things what does an average day at work look like for you? Oh it's a bit hectic at the moment. (laughs) No so really the first thing I do so I've got a a few people working part-time in my team with me now which is fantastic so usually what I do is 
first thing is take some time to go through all the new emails, voicemails and things that have come in, you know, overnight and then assign that to one of the facilitators to sort of manage that engagement going forward. I will then often be sort of midway through my own facilitation. So I could be reviewing an expression of interest form to see if it sort of aligns with the, you know, the type of work that we could support. I usually have a follow-up conversation with the company once they've sent that to me. Our process is two-step. So the first thing they submit is an expression of interest. So that's not a formal funding application. That's purely around for us to assess if they're eligible. And then at a high level, they would describe what it is that they would like assistance with. And so that's when we go and do the matchmaking. So for me, I'd usually follow up with them to make sure that I understand really what it is that they want to get out of the project And then I'll use that to go and sort of approach some of our researchers to see if we've got people with the relevant skills to to deliver the project. So usually doing several of those a day. Let's say a company, we connect them with a team. They sort of liaise directly from there. They scope out a project, agree upon the deliverables, all of that. They decide they want to proceed with a funding application. Then they would be sent a separate thing that includes the full scope of work and budget and that, which ultimately is what gets reviewed to approve the the co-funding. So often I'll be reviewing drafts of those as well. Uh, Roughly once a week, we'll have our panel of reviewers will sit to review the applications. So it could be, you know, one of those days as well. I have a review booked in. Then there's always admin jobs. (laughs) You can't get away from those. There's databases and leads and contracts and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of things going on at any given time. You know, the sort of, so I'm based in Melbourne, so we certainly got a good dose of lockdown over the past couple of years. And so a lot of the things that I liked to do prior to then, which was attending things like pitch nights, so where the companies actually get up and pitch, they share what it is that they're doing. There's some great events that happen in, could be in climate tech, it could be ag tech, any sort of industry. I would try and get to those as regularly as possible. A lot of them went online, but now they're starting to come back to sort of hybrid or face-to-face events too. So that's getting really exciting because I think, you know, not not everybody, as you said earlier, is aware that we have this program available. So wherever and however I can, we do like to try and attend these sorts of events or maybe I'll give a presentation to like an accelerator program or something like that to let them know that we're out there and we're a means of support as well. So that got put a little bit on the back burner when the program actually got very busy and very popular and during the sort of first two years of the pandemic. So that's something that now I'm hoping to be able to allocate a bit more time to because I think we've got some great stories to share, but also we want to let people know that this program's out there and, and the other ways that they can engage with the public research sector through some of our offerings. So yeah, my day, that's probably very long-winded answer but it's got a lot of meetings and a lot of emails and a lot of phone calls (laughs) and a lot of number crunching but I think that's what makes it really enjoyable is that it's not it's certainly not monotonous that's for sure (laughs) no a lot of people stuff but it also sounds like you need to have a little bit of like a legal not not be legal but just have enough of a legal mind to be able to like read contracts and understand what it means for people and stuff. Yeah, so we we absolutely have dedicated contract managers that that do that. I 
can provide very sort of high level. This is typically what they look like or what a payment structure might look like. But, you know, of course, I'm not going to provide anybody business advice. I'm not a business advisor. You can speak to your tax accountant about all of those things and they'll do a much better job than I would. I'm not going to give them legal advice. That would be a terrible idea. Do not take anything I ever say to you as legal advice. So, you know, that we we certainly have people within our, our teams and broader parts of the organisation that support all of that. So, yeah, but I do think, you know, you do become, I'm not going to say learn because there's a lot of us have done a lot of study and then that's a loaded term to say that you've studied something. I certainly have not studied something, but I've, you do pick up certain things and patterns or at least probably for me the, the useful part is seeing where the hurdles often lie so that you can address those early on because when you've looked at 200 plus projects or whatever you start to see this tends to be where things become problematic or this is how we can overcome this particular issue that I can see the client might have or the engagement might have so for me someone who's come from a research background academic background and not a business background, I feel like I've learned a lot about that. You know, I know what a Series A fundraise is now and things like this. I I don't have an MBA. You know, I haven't done any, I haven't come from the startup world. So it's really a lot of upskilling, but I think in a way that covers off on, on things that I wouldn't have ever, say, encountered or don't imagine I would have encountered in my previous roles. So, yeah, I've certainly got a, a lot of respect for how many people it takes to get these sorts of projects and things up and running and whilst I'm managing the program it would not be getting very far if I didn't have those other people involved to tap into and make sure that these things keep moving in a streamlined and efficient way so yeah I'm very lucky to work with a great group of people that make this all happen. Teams and a diversity of expertise is very important. I am super curious how you go about finding the right researcher. Like, I'm assuming, at least at the beginning, there's no way you could have known everyone who works at CSIRO. There is just too many people. So I have, it's funny, I have a bit of a reputation, I guess, in the wider team because some of the the other programs are across the entire public research sector. So they'll be very well connected with universities. But I do get a lot of phone calls saying, do you know somebody at CSIRO who does X, Y, and Z? And I, I'm ready for an organization-wide celebrity heads game because I reckon I'm going to be up there with <laughs> potential winners of that game. So I've been, oh gosh, how long have I been in the role? I've been with SME Connect for, I reckon, gosh, maybe three-ish years, 2019. And I think how has just been through constant repetition of, of doing this stuff. And meeting people who then become, I guess, in a way sort of champions of the program or business development managers that I can call on and say, hey, is anyone in your group working in this space in the moment? So I do rely on them quite a lot, as well as the individual research teams. Good old Google doesn't hurt every now and then (laughs) to look people up um, or I have a rough idea of who might be in that area so I can kind of backtrack. So it's certainly a lot of networking is the the short answer, like really getting to know people, teams, being, you know, attending events and all of that. That's It's a fun part, but it's also very strategic because, you know, I have to know a lot of people to be able to do this in a timely sort of way. So 
yeah, I think my knowledge is pretty good. But I mean, yeah, as you said, it's a big organisation. It's probably still only like 10% or something, but it's still a big number. (laughs) So there's no real easy way of that. Just time, I think, has helped me get accustomed to where everybody sits and what we're doing or not doing and various teams. Are there like all of CSIRO meetups or like do you have hangouts all together where you can mingle and get to know each other? Yeah, so there's been, um, you know, I guess a lot of the individual groups and and units that will have certain events so it could be like monthly meetings and things like that that I might drop in on. We actually had a a catch-up on site to to welcome some people that had moved from another site to our site a few weeks ago and it was great. There were people that I'd, you know, been speaking to a lot for the last two years but had never actually met face-to-face before, so... Yeah, there are certainly um, opportunities. I'm part of the Private CSIRO group. So we have a, a LGBTQI group and for allies as well that I actually, the past few years, have participated in CSIRO's March in the Mardi Gras Parade in Sydney. So myself and one of my colleagues actually choreographed the routines because you know, in a past past life, I used to, used to be a dance teacher. So I choreographed the routine for 40 plus of our scientists. I actually got to meet a whole bunch of them at Mardi Gras in Sydney a few weeks ago. So I feel like that's the best networking event that you could imagine. So if you saw any of the footage, if you look for a, a green uh, Power Ranger, you might recognize her face. <laughs> you, you did rather take social media by storm for a while there. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so that's, you know, that that was obviously an amazing experience. And then there are, I just, as I said, I try and pop into as many things as I can, because at the end of the day, I think, regardless of what industry you're in, what field you're in, what career you want, you know, networking is probably always going to be one of the first two pieces of advice that comes out of somebody's mouth. Maybe I'm going to have to go back up the previous podcast and see what other people have said, but I feel like networking is just so important nowadays in particular so many jobs don't get advertised because it's you know it's just who you know type industry so that to me is is critical okay so for the big one you have kind of touched on it already but what was your path say from high school to where you are now I'm assuming that this job didn't exist when you're in high school therefore it couldn't have been your dream career so what was the plan versus what actually happened yeah, so I, when I was working out what I wanted to study, I didn't really know. All I knew was that it had to have something to do with the environment. I'm very passionate about environmental issues, still am. It's number one priority for me, really, in terms of what I wanted out of my career. And I got a pretty reasonable piece of advice when I was in high school from a careers counsellor who said to me, well, if you study management, you'll probably have to work in management. But if you study science, you can probably work in science and management. And I've done quite a few different things in my career and I'm someone that likes to change it up a bit. So the idea of maybe being pigeonholed already that early on terrified me. So I'm like, oh, I better give this science thing a crack. So I actually had no intention of ever becoming a scientist. I just knew that I wanted to do something with the environment. So I did my degree at Flinders University in South Australia. So I studied environmental science and paired that with a diploma of language in German just because. Fun fact, that served me well later because it's part of my PhD in Germany. So <laughs> it was just lucky I actually knew the language because I studied it at uni. Yeah, and so then once I got into environmental science, I 
didn't have a clear idea of what area I wanted to pursue until sort of my second or third year where I started attending lectures in hydrology, groundwater hydrology specifically. And I was like, wow, okay, no one ever talks about this. Well, at least in the circles that I'm from, groundwater wasn't, you know, dinner conversation 101. These days, guarantee it comes up a lot more often. But, you know, 2007, eight, whenever I was there, it just, it wasn't a big area, at least in, in my experience. So I was just absolutely mesmerized by how important this thing is that we never spoke about and how essential that resource is. So I started specializing in the water resources area, did an honors year as a groundwater modeler, and then did a PhD looking at coastal hydrogeology. So in particular, like limestone cave systems and those sorts of complex coastal areas and what happens when essentially they get contaminated by intruding seawater. And how do we handle that mathematically in a numerical model? So that that was what my PhD was on. This will get to startups, I promise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that itself would be a whole podcast. So yeah, yeah, and loved it. Did a bit more research after I finished my PhD. Where I was in Adelaide, so I was part of the National Centre for Groundwater Research and Training. It was a it was a really big hub for that research. But I, I felt like I just wanted to give something else a bit of a try. So I actually left and worked for a consulting company after that. So I was working, yeah, more for industry, but as a consultant, doing, again, conservation projects, mining projects, all sorts of things. And that was a really good experience to see how science gets applied outside of an academic setting. And for me, the conclusion of that was is that I enjoyed science when I got to really take my time or, you know, follow my own interests, not so much when I had to do things in a certain time with a certain product in a certain way. So I sort of quickly realized that that wasn't for me. So I'm like, well, what do I do now? Because <laughs> there's that feeling of when you leave academia, the door closes on you, right? So I was like, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to go back. So I'm like, oh God, what's next? I just felt like I needed to do something completely different. And that's actually how I joined CSIRO. So I joined their education and outreach team as a program officer for their STEM professionals in schools program. So I was helping to facilitate that in Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. So I did that for a bit over one and a half years and that was fantastic. And I'm actually still a volunteer in that program. So I volunteer as a scientist that goes out to schools to work with teachers and students on sort of bringing a real world aspect of STEM into the classroom. Teachers are doing an amazing job, but I think their job is so challenging to begin with that you add keeping on top of the state of the science on top of that. It's an impossible task, you know, or very difficult at least. So to have those partnerships and to be able to you know, contextualize in a different way the things that they're doing in the classroom. That I really enjoyed that about the job. So I actually continued on as a volunteer in the program once I left. But what I realized when I was working in education is that I'm a scientist. I need to be involved in research somehow. What do I do now? <laughs> and I before we were talking, I used sort of the Goldilocks analogy. Well, this is too hot, this is too cold. And then this role came up in CSIRO's SME Connect team to work with the, the person who was the then program manager of Kickstart. And I'm like, well, that's great because when I was in education, I was facilitating partnerships between schools and scientists or schools and industry. Surely between industry and research is kind of the same facilitation process. It's just that I'm going to have to draw on my past experience as a research scientist to be able to help 
plan out and, and support those engagements. So, and that was, yeah, I joined that team in, in 2019 and sort of mid 2020 took over the role as program manager. So, and I've been, yeah, I've been working with Kickstart ever since. And for me, it's, it blends a lot of things that I really have enjoyed from all of my past work experience. And I don't think I could do the job that I'm doing now had I not gone and had those roles that to someone from the outside looking in, you go, hey, you did a PhD in hydrogeology. You're not using that. I'm like, I'm using that every single day. Thank you very much. You know, I'm project managing, I'm planning, I'm delegating, I'm having to speak about complex research and development ideas in a way that you know, the company and the scientists need to be able to have that conversation with me in a way that I'm going to be able to understand or make sense of what's going on. So, but then even the work I did in education on, you know, managing different stakeholders, you know, you've got to get two very different entities working on something together in a way that's going to be mutually beneficial to both parties. So, you know, we call them soft skills, people skills. They're not soft. (laughs) They're very hard. So, I don't think that uh, studying a certain thing or, or this linear academic pathway it's is for some people and it's a very rewarding career and I think something to be very respected. But there's also other valid options that are out there that are not giving up or walking away or anything like that. I think it's just using those skills in a different way because at the end of the day, STEM is a set of skills and how we apply it's really what the job is at the end of the day the job to me is not so much I'm a scientist or I'm a this I'm that so no I use science to do this thing or I use engineering to do this thing like there are tools that I draw on to do whatever job it is at the time and gosh it would be great and it is great from my current experience to see people with these stem skills like running businesses you know that's that's awesome we want people with that kind of critical thinking mindset doing jobs that are not just scientific jobs as well because those skills we want to be applied to people making all sorts of decisions and creating new things and running a business is an opportunity to come up with your new thing that you've been sitting on in the lab and you're like I don't know if my supervisor will fund this but you know (laughs) you can take it out there in the world and see if it has legs you could just be ahead of your time, you know, and, and yeah, a few more years once you've done your degree, you go and start that company and who knows what's going to happen. So they've all been quite different roles, but I think have ultimately served each other. And, you know, the like you said, to, well, kickstart at least certainly didn't exist when I started my university degree. Even the whole in Australia, that innovation ecosystem with all the accelerator programs and that is quite new when you compare it to, say, like Silicon Valley and places like that where they've got these really established ecosystems. So that this idea of being adaptable I really think is important because we're also possibly, you or me, maybe we'll be doing jobs one day that don't exist right now. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's super exciting to not know. So I don't know how much of this I should confess, but I don't have much of a plan, you know. Uh, And someone asked me this the other day, like, where do you see your career going? And I'm like, well, it served me well up until now, at least to not really know the answer to that question. (laughs) But if I was to look at the past to forecast the future, because I'm a modeler and that's like what we like to do, maybe one day I will work for a startup company or have my own startup company. Maybe that's the trajectory that my experience is going to take me. And maybe that's going to have something to do with the environmental sector. I don't know. Maybe we can check in in five years time and find out. (laughs) 
I feel like we need to watch this space, listeners, because although she's saying like maybe, I feel like that means you're sitting on like a really cool idea that you're not quite ready to share with everyone yet. <laughs> I, I think my problem is the ideas. I've got the, you know, that's not my strength area. <laughs> I wish I had some of these ideas that I've heard in the past few years because they're brilliant and they're super creative. And I think that's another thing about science that I love is it's often pinned as like the logical option that you do if you're not a creative person. And I'm like, hello, you want to solve a problem that no one in history has solved before? Like you've got to think outside the box to be able to do that. That to me is pretty creative. So but I also love art and dance. So I've, I love the creative arts and humanities too. So like I'm all for that. But I think to separate the two is a bit of a mistake. <laughs> yeah, I think we're getting a little bit better at it, but it's really slow. There's a huge amount of crossover. And I think you see a lot of that in the tech industry now, like NFTs, for example, people talking about them, art meets blockchain meets all of these kinds of things. So actually the, the intersection of both is already there. It's just happening in different ways and so a lot of people with artistic interests are learning more more traditionally sort of tech-based skills like coding and programming for example that's kind of like learning a language now we learn foreign languages in school potentially but now we'll be doing that as well as a programming language because they're used in basically every industry now which certainly wasn't the case for me if I had my time again would have picked to have studied that a lot earlier I am curious if what advice you would give, let's say to a young Megan. My career advice? <laughs> yeah. So, like let's keep it uh, G-rated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think advice. That's a good question. I think to think big <laughs> because there's so many different avenues to explore and I'm very lucky that I've had the opportunity to do a lot of things that I have and that's not an opportunity that everybody gets. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. But in terms of my younger self, I think just be a bit resilient. You know, there are going to be times that you're going to want to throw in the towel and I came very close to, but they're the, often the things that, you know, where the magic happens. And for me, that's completely my experience of my PhD. I never wanted to quit more than when I was six months away from submitting in in the four years it took me, like three and a half I got through, but that I didn't think I was going to get through those last six months. And I'm glad that I stuck it out because the, the rewards from that were certainly worth that last big, muddy, uphill, windy, rainy trek to get to the top. And that's, you know, that's a PhD, but I'm sure that you can apply that to many other things people do, whether it's starting a business, choosing to go to university for the first time out of anybody in your family. You know, there are there are bigger challenges, but I think that determination and resilience is often way more important than this idea of natural talent or ability or skill I don't don't think I had too many of those naturally but with a bit of determination that will get you a lot further (laughs) yeah being naturally talented at something and it gets you a little way and often you see those people who are like really naturally just really good at something not do so well when it gets too hard because they haven't had to deal with the hard bit so that's right you know and to know that you can 
come out the other side of that gives you that sense of self-confidence and your abilities you know we've all experienced imposter syndrome at some point we may experience it ever at every point but we can often prove to ourselves you know our abilities through keeping at something even when the going gut does get tough the, the flip side to that is if something's not working for you like don't do it <laughs> you know just because we, we do a lot of things because we feel like that's what's expected of us and that's the path we were meant to take or that's what we were supposed to do or you know in my case I, I felt like I was letting people down by the fact that I chose to leave an academic career pretty soon after submitting my PhD you know I felt like I was meant to continue doing research in a research environment so for me I had to took a bit of bravery from me to let go of that expectation because I didn't want to let anybody down and I did question whether or not I'd wasted my time you know what if I don't use it have I just spent 10 years at university for a completely non-purposeful reasons but that fear I guess was allayed pretty quickly when I realized that actually the study that I did the research that I did the work that I did helped me develop a lot of skills that were not just in that specific area of knowledge that I published in but every other thing I completed in every other day that I had to get up and take myself to go and do that job you know is can be used in some other way so to want to try something different to want to do something that's maybe not necessarily what was expected of you I think as well knowing when to make that choice for yourself I think is very important too yeah being brave and being resilient Are there any particular myths or misconceptions that you would like to, whether it's about sort of working with CSIRO as a startup or I don't know what else, that you'd like to take this opportunity to bust? Myths I'd like to bust? Oh, well, I think for me, I'm also very passionate about engaging more women in science. I think there's still this misconception that we're not as good at it (laughs) or we don't have the same capabilities. To me, again, it comes back to this idea of it's just a set of tools that that we use to do a whole lot of different things. So I think the way that we pitch science or its its image is maybe, at least for me, it's not my experience of coming to science. For me, I had a passion and a problem that I wanted to solve, which was the environmental aspects, and then science gave me a tool to do that. So I think we all get driven by various different motivations whether it's life experiences, some someone in our family's fallen sick or area where we grew up got polluted, it could be any sort of motivation. Like that that to me is that's enough. You know, you've got if you've got the drive and you can be a scientist, you can do science if you want to, and it doesn't matter how you identify science and tech, it's the world that we live in, it's for everybody, you know. So you don't have to be a super genius or anything like this. You don't have to have gone to the best school like I think science is something that's only going to get better if we include diverse perspectives in what we do perspectives from women LGBTQI community indigenous communities especially you know diversity is the key to doing good science so the myth that I would like to bust is that is uh you know a certain stereotype of a scientist that needs to be put to rest yeah and hopefully by listening to this podcast, just people are starting to realise, you know, the image that you had in your mind is often not the person who's doing the awesome things. Absolutely. <laughs> is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you would like to share? 
I don't think so. I think we've covered uh, quite a few different things in the last hour, (laughs) which is pretty good. We have touched on a few different topics. In that case, to start wrapping up, have you got a shout out for us, a virtual high five for someone or someone's who you think are just doing an awesome job and deserve high fives? Oh, well, yeah, I have to shout out to the facilitators in my Kickstart team at Syro because without them and their input, we wouldn't be able to help half the number of companies that we are at the moment. So, yeah, and they're all equally as passionate about doing this work. So big shout out to them and, and all the, the facilitators that have worked with me previously as well because their contributions have been um, incredibly invaluable. And I'll be doubly selfish and shout out to all the companies that have put their hand up to come and do some work with us because it can be intimidating to look at a doing something like this, to invest in an idea or, yeah, so that's bravery. So shout out to all the brave people out there doing crazy things. <laughs> okay, so that's a lot of high fives for us people. No, 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 more high fives the better. So we're high-fiving all the wonderful facilitators who are helping doing the matchmaking between people who've got ideas and people who've got the skills and the tools. And we're also high-five shout-outs to everyone with an idea who is being brave enough to give it a shot and see what happens because it's terrifying and potentially incredibly rewarding. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Megan. This has been absolutely delightful. And hopefully everyone is now sitting at home being like, or wherever they listen to the podcast, obviously not all at home, but sitting there thinking, you know, that thing that I thought could be a thing, maybe I should draw a blueprint of it and see where, see where it could go. (laughs) (laughs) High-fiving you all too. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, You can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.